0: Hello and welcome to Spectator Out Loud. Each week, we ask a few of our writers to read their piece from the magazine Aloud. I'm Max Jeffrey. On this week's episode, Richard Dawkins tells us how to convert an atheist to a Christian. Lisa Hasseldein explains the dire state of the German army. Douglas Murray looks at the return of The Trump Show. Cindy Yu reviews a high-ranking Chinese intelligence officer's account of life under the CCP and Mary Wakefield wonders whether it's wrong to track her child. First up, Richard Dawkins.
1: Monday and Tuesday, I gave over to two long conversations with Arvid Agron, a Swedish biologist who wants to write a scientific biography of me. As the author of The Gene's Eye View of Evolution, he knows the subject inside out. Disconcertingly, he seems to have read every word I've ever written and has an almost telepathic familiarity with my entire stock of humorous anecdotes. I wouldn't put it past him to divine what my mother, who died at 102, would certainly have said, but I don't understand. Why would anyone want to write a biography of you? He's now going to start looking for a publisher, and she would no doubt want to wish him luck. I'm reminded of a nice publicity campaign for one of Douglas Adams's books, a cardboard dummy of a little old lady in a hat, saying, Hello, I'm Douglas's mum. Do buy his book. It's awfully good. If anyone merits a good biography, it's Ayan Hersey Ali. Her autobiography, Infidel, chronicles her extraordinary life from childhood in the Islamic hell, for women, of Somalia, her escape to the Netherlands, where she swiftly learned Dutch and became an MP, then the all-too-credible threat from the jihadist murderer of her colleague, Theo van Gogh, pinned with a dagger to his corpse. After moving to America, this valiant, charming intellectual warrior became a stalwart of the atheist movement, on a par with Christopher Hitchens, Dan Dennett and Sam Harris. But now, in an astonishing volte face she's announced her conversion to Christianity. Imagine the Pope suddenly becoming an atheist, or worse, an orange man, and you'll get an idea of the fluttering in atheistic dovecuts caused by Ion's tergiversation. I asked her whether she really believes in fundamental Christian tenets, such as the afterlife, Jesus' resurrection, and his parthenogenetic provenance. She doesn't. I got the impression her Christianity is a matter of politics more than belief. Christianity is our best bulwark against Islam. Well, if rooting for benevolent Christianity in preference to malign Islam is all it takes to be a Christian, I'm a Christian too. There's more to it than that, and I certainly haven't done her justice here. Fortunately, a public meeting has been arranged in New York this May under the title Dissident Dialogues, where we can thrash it out. I'm looking forward to it, not only because I adore Ayan, but the brilliant Stephen Pinker will be there. Also, John McWhorter whom I've long wanted to meet, and Kathleen Stock, the brave feminist philosopher, disgracefully hounded out of Sussex University by a howling mob because she dared to use woman to mean what it actually does mean in English. Wednesday, to the New Theatre in Oxford, to see Carmen. The company is Ukrainian, and the whole audience spontaneously stood for the Ukrainian national anthem, belted out by the cast and orchestra. And very stirring it is. I just wish the odious Putin could have heard it. Why do we English put up with our own national dirge, dreary melody, and words to match? Compare the martial splendour of the Marseillaise or Land of My Fathers, roared in Welsh by a Cardiff rugby crowd. We could have Elgar's Pomp and Circumstance March Number One, preferably with less jingoistic words than Land of Hope and Glory, or this whole stupider theme. I vow to thee my country, or Paris, Jerusalem, even keeping Blake's enigmatic words. King Charles is evidently a man of decided tastes. Maybe he'd get behind a change. He could then join in, for it must be pretty embarrassing, singing an invocation to save yourself while extolling your own nobility. People keep asking me what I think about artificial intelligence. I was both disturbed and inspired by Mustafa Suleiman's The Coming Wave. I asked ChatGPT about Helen Spurway, 1915-78, wife of JBS Haldane, and was startled to be informed that, after Haldane's death, she married Richard Dawkins. When I told ChatGPT this wasn't so, it, he, she, they, what are ChatGPT's pronouns, very decently climbed down but then it said, equally falsely, that Helen Spurway was married to Aldous Huxley. Not impressive. However, when I asked it to write an essay on evolution in the style of Donald Trump, it produced a tour de force of vainglorious ignorance. Brilliant. Even better, I asked it to write me a computer programme to generate a command to reverse the chessboard at random intervals, and I remained bowled over with incredulous admiration. With a mixture of trepidation and exhilarated curiosity, I await our future.
0: That was Richard Dawkins, and next, Lisa Hasseldein.
2: Last year, Olaf Scholz, the German Chancellor, made a pledge that would have been unthinkable not long ago, to send a combat brigade to be permanently deployed in Lithuania. The plan was to station almost 5,000 troops an hour away from the Sovelki Corridor, the 40-mile-long border between Poland and Lithuania, flanked by Belarus to the east and the Russian enclave Kaliningrad to the west. Schultz and his new Defence Minister, Boris Pistorius, wanted to transform Germany's military from a medium sized operational force to one which can be Europe's first line of defence if Vladimir Putin ever attacks NATO territory. If Schultz's announcement seemed too good to be true, that's because it was. So far, just 30 German soldiers have been sent to Lithuania. The pledge also came as a surprise to the Bundeswehr, Germany's armed forces, who were not consulted beforehand. Pistorius, whose only military experience is his year in national service more than 40 years ago, believes in the politics of big targets. If you announce a plan, others have to find a way of making it work. The speed of the project clearly shows that Germany understands the new security reality, he said. We have to take into account that Putin will one day attack a NATO country. According to a classified document leaked to the tabloid Bild, the Bundeswehr is wargaming scenarios of a possible Russian attack on the Svalki Corridor by May next year. But if Schultz and Pistorius had consulted the military, they might have been warned against wishful thinking and told that re-galvanising the Bundeswehr is a far harder job than their rhetoric suggests. The army that I am allowed to lead is more or less empty, admitted Lieutenant General Alphonse Mice, the head of the Bundeswehr, in 2022. The options that we can offer politicians to support the alliance are extremely limited, he said. Mice worried that the politicians in Berlin would react to Putin's invasion by sending arms to Ukraine, running down the troops even more. His fears were justified. It wasn't long before the few functioning leopard tanks Germany had were sent to Ukraine. In an internal memo from November last year leaked to Der Spiegel, Maes said that across the board the army had only about 60% of the equipment it needs, from A for artillery pieces to Z for tent tarpaulin, in German, Zeltbahn. Across a spreadsheet he listed nearly 2,000 crucial items missing from Germany's arsenal, from piping and fireproof gloves to, rather pointedly, a new fleet of leopard tanks. This shortage list, Maes dryly concluded, makes clear the diversity and small-scale nature of the challenges. All this is before the financial cost of the huge Lithuanian deployment, he said, which had not yet been budgeted. It's hard for Pistorius to hide the army's deficiencies. One of the two tank brigades he's promised to Lithuania, the Panzerbattalion 203 from Augustorf, North Rhine-Westphalia, has no tanks. He says replacements for the stock of Leopard 2s, which were sent to Ukraine, will be directly delivered to Lithuania in 2026, assuming, that is, the contractors deliver on time. Until then, the soldiers have to practice on simulators. Pistorius wants to send a tank battalion without tanks to Lithuania, says Ingo Gerdeskjens, who sits on the Bundestags Defence Committee. What kind of signal is this to our Lithuanian allies? Perhaps Lithuania will give up on Scholz's promises and instead cut a deal with Poland, which is building up its military with gusto. Poland may soon become the biggest contributor to Europe's security. Its military has been designed to deter Russia for decades, while Germany has been half-hearted about defence ever since its reunification. Back then, the German military was capped at 370,000 soldiers, and funds previously earmarked for defence forces were instead channeled into economic relief for former East Germany. Investment in the Bundeswehr never picked up. One audit commissioned when Ursula von der Leyen was Defence Secretary showed that of the Luftwaffe's 388 aircraft, 121 were ready for immediate deployment. Only one of its four submarines was seaworthy. Of its 180 boxer-armoured combat vehicles, 70 were deemed unfit for deployment. The Nadir came in 2015 when German troops taking part in NATO exercises in Norway had to make do with broom handles painted black to simulate boxer tank guns because they couldn't get hold of the real thing. In 2019, a few months before von der Leyen quit the government to become president of the European Commission, German forces were using mobile phones during a NATO exercise instead of encrypted radio equipment. As recently as December 2022, in an exercise preparing troops for the NATO High Readiness Response Force, all 18 Puma infantry fighting vehicles being used that day broke down. One spontaneously caught fire. The depressing thing is that very little has changed, as Ukrainians using German kit have found out. Just before Christmas, Pistorius visited a workshop in Lithuania that was fixing Leopard 2's sent back from Donetsk. He brought an entourage with him, including journalists, who were expecting to see war-damaged vehicles, but most had just broken down and were being fixed. Unfortunately, only a very small number of the battle tanks delivered can still be used by Ukraine, admitted Sebastian Schaefer, a German member of the Bundestag who was on the trip. German army numbers, which fell to an all-time low of 177,000 eight years ago, are supposed to be at 183,000, but the military is struggling to find enough recruits to serve, even at this strength. Schultz's goal of 203,000 troops by the end of the decade seems fanciful. Pistorius is now talking about bringing back conscription. But where would these conscripts sleep? We don't have any barracks for this, says Marie-Agnès stachtse chair of the Bundestags-Defense Select Committee. We don't have sufficient staffing levels for training, and we have long since reduced further resources for conscription. As a last resort, Pistorius recently admitted that he'd consider allowing foreigners into the army to boost its numbers. He's not the first German defence minister to play with this idea. Von der Leyen considered it in 2018, but the scheme never got off the ground, as it was met with a lukewarm response from Germany's neighbours, who were concerned the Bundeswehr could poach their best recruits. Schultz, working with a €100 billion defence budget, is scrambling to restock the Bundeswehr's depleted kit. He has agreed to spend €3.3 billion on an Israeli missile defence system, the largest export deal in Israel's history. A €10 billion order for F-35 jets from the USA will be delivered by 2029. Last week, a deal worth €50 million euros was announced for the procurement of nearly half a million protective decoy flares. Reported 1.5 billion euros was spent updating the Bundeswehr's communication technology at the beginning of last year, buying enough new radios for 34,000 military vehicles. But there have been reports of breakdowns, weak radio batteries and trouble with installation. Many of his orders will not arrive until the end of the decade at the earliest, and already there have been delays. An order for 367 military trucks have been held up by RAS about whether funds were indeed available for the second instalment. There's an old joke in Yes Minister that the role of a defence minister is not really to defend the country, but to make people feel as if they are safe. Pistorius and Schultz are failing on both accounts.
0: That was Lisa Hasseldine, and now Douglas Murray.
3: Well, that's that. It now looks certain that Donald J. Trump is going to be the Republican nominee for president this year. At the time of writing, Nikki Haley is still hanging on in the primaries – But the contest is essentially over. Even if Haley stayed around and hoovered up the votes of every other Republican candidate who has now dropped out, she still wouldn't arrive at the dominant position Trump has occupied since the start of the race. This will be a cause for either alarm or rejoicing. What nobody should be is surprised. Ever since the race for the 2024 nomination started, it has all been about the man who wasn't there. Donald Trump chose not to turn up to any of the primary debates, sitting them out like a lion allowing the minions to pick away at a carcass he had already feasted on. What would it have availed him to mix with the single-digit scavengers? He needn't have worried anyway the only candidate who ever actually pointed themselves straight at Trump was Chris Christie, who is a superb debater but never managed to break through. Except for Vivek Ramaswamy, who paid frequent and loud homage to the Don, the rest tried to duck the question of the absentee leader. In retrospect, that may not have been the best move. During the campaign, I asked one Republican whether anyone else might join Christie in actually running at Trump, and was told it would only really make sense for Ron DeSantis. Why? Because nothing else is working for him, was the reply. When he started off, DeSantis seemed like he had a genuine chance of breaking through. He has a background in the military, As Governor of Florida, he took a number of high-wire stances, from opposing Covid lockdowns to running straight at the Disney Corporation, which is actually scarier than it sounds. For a moment, it seemed like a path forward could be his. But, as a candidate, he was oddly muted, and he didn't seem to be able to explain why he wasn't just a less experienced, more palatable Trump. Whether or not a full-on attack on Trump would have worked, he didn't take it. So, earlier this week, he dropped out of the race and joined most of the other candidates in swearing his fealty to the boss. That Nikki Haley is now desperate can be seen from the fact that this experienced former governor and ambassador to the U.N. complained in an interview this week about how hard it has been to be a woman and brown. Haley has never previously been a whiner, nor noticeably brown, and the Republican base watched this with a cocked eyebrow. They don't like a whiner. So Trump will be the Republican nominee, and the circus can recommence. I say circus because how else to describe the endless spectacle and speculation which surrounds everything to do with Trump on and off the campaign trail. He is excellent at belittling people until they kiss his ring, at which point, generally speaking, you can set your watch and wait for him to trash them. Trump is a man about whom almost nothing new can be said. But there is now a challenge for all the Republicans who are going to have to stand behind him in case he turfs Joe Biden out of office. His detractors hope that he can still be taken out by some non-political means. One state court has already ruled that Trump's name cannot be on the ballot at the presidential election in November. His lawyers are challenging that ruling, and in truth, Trump had no chance of winning in Colorado anyway but there is a justified fear among his team that one ban could lead to another. Others of his opponents hope that the growing list of indictments and legal cases against him could mean that Trump is prosecuted before the November election. They dream of Trump being deemed inadmissible or having to campaign from prison without taking into account that such a fantasy scenario, like every other scenario, might actually help him. In any case, all such ideas seem to rely on increasingly forlorn hopes. It is going to be Trump and people are going to have to get used to that and therefore two spectacles will now start to play themselves out. The first is the Democrats. As the months go by it is inevitable that there are going to be increased rumblings in the Democrat Party. Can they really afford to run Joe Biden again? A man who is always one stumble, metaphorical or actual, away from disaster. And if not him, then who? Donald Trump may be the only person who could actually help Biden get re-elected. That's how many Democrats now console themselves. But if the American economy goes into recession this year, or there is any other kind of financial downturn, the odds of Trump beating Biden increase significantly. And then there is the Republican Party, where there is a deeper moral crisis. The oddity of Donald Trump is that everybody in the party who is loyal to him, or is going to have to become loyal, knows more about him than they can ever admit. January the 6th was not a serious attempt to overthrow the US government. It was not an insurrection, as the left-wing media has insisted for three years. But it was a disgrace. And it was egged on by Donald Trump, who marched his supporters to the Capitol and let them rampage there for a considerable time before he called them off. That should make him unfit for office, but it clearly hasn't. It is the same with everything to do with his character and governing style. And yet, a Trump presidency would offer conservatives in America and the rest of the world an opportunity to reverse four years of Biden's policies and solve a number of major problems on the home and foreign stage. Is Trump the ideal tool to use against the Democrats? Almost certainly not. But he's the tool the base have chosen. The world will now get to see whether that was wise.
0: That was Douglas Murray, and now Cindy Yu.
4: All families have secrets, but few family histories are classified by the state. After the death of Snow's father, his study is cleared out by officials from the Chinese Communist Party. But Snow discovers letters and unmarked hard drives hidden in hollowed-out dictionaries that they'd missed. The material reveals that her father was a high-ranking intelligence officer in the party, handpicked to build China's intelligence service after the founding of the New People's Republic. He had hidden them for his family to find. This isn't the setup for a new spy novel, but a true story. In 2018, Snow handed the trove of material to the Chinese journalist Xingran, who has collated it in The Book of Secrets, translated by Will Spence. It tells the tale of a family close to the nerve centre of power since the birth of the People's Republic, through voice recordings, photographs, and the letters Snow's father, Jie, wrote to her mother, Moon. Together, they form an exceptional account of how communist authoritarianism evolved in China. Xinran has anonymized the family to protect those they still know inside the country. In the 1940s, when still an undergraduate at the elite Tsinghua University, Jie secretly joined the party, believing it to be the answer to the country's malaise. As a child, he'd seen a Chinese woman stabbed to death by Japanese occupiers for smuggling rice, which traumatized and radicalized him. Being assigned to intelligence work reflected the party's trust in him, but it also meant that he was able to see the organization's darkest side. There were red flags from the beginning. A fellow student at Tsinghua was shot, along with his parents, for waving a Kuomintang flag on Tiananmen Square after the communist takeover. When acute famine set in after the Great Leap Forward, Jie could see the true damage the party was wreaking on the country. Military intelligence found that there was mass starvation in the countryside as a result of officials falsifying grain harvests a few years earlier. In some areas, people don't even have the energy to bury their relatives. Zia wrote. His letters also reveal that the Soviets had coerced China to join the Korean War in return for continued technical support, and that the majority of Chinese prisoners of war from that conflict chose to go to Taiwan on their release instead of returning to China. Revelations like these are still controversial in China, where history is constantly erased and manipulated by the party. This collective amnesia, as Seng Rang calls it, means that most Chinese don't know their own history, while those outside China have most access to the truth, often from English-language sources. Which makes the Book of Secrets a particularly rare thing, a candid insider account showing just how much the party knew and how much it covered up. There's a tragic parallel between the CCP's stranglehold on China and Jia's control over his wife, the other story that emerges. Quote, I've often thought of myself as your mentor, your political patron, he tells Moon years into their marriage in one typically patronising letter. She'd been a student when he was an instructor at the military academy in Beijing, a power dynamic he never shook off. To prevent her going to Korea to aid the war effort before they were married, he secretly told the party about her family in Taiwan, which would have repercussions for decades after. To break up her courtship with another man, he triggered an investigation into the rival, which ended with the man's exile to a Siberian labor camp and moon marrying her out of necessity. In trying to become her protector, he became her jailer. In return, she punished him with silent resistance ever after. Jie couldn't say much of this to his children when he was alive, so he left the letters and recordings for them to find. They reveal a man who struggled to accept that his marriage and politics were both mistakes. Throughout his career, he'd been purged and arrested numerous times. There's one particularly poignant gap in the letters between 1966 and 1976, the ten years of the Cultural Revolution in which he'd been sent to a labour camp. But it was his final arrest in 2009, when he was in his 80s, that really knocked his faith in the party dead. Am I still a communist? Has my life been lived in vain? He asked after his release. In the later letters, Jie seems optimistic that the internet will usher in a new open age, presenting, quote, our only chance of escape from the party's control. That now looks like misplaced hope. Zia died in July 2017, a few months before Xi Jinping's abolition of the two-term limit on China's presidency. Is escape still a possibility? The first step must be for China to learn about its past.
0: That was Cindy Yu, and finally, Mary Wakefield.
4: One evening a few weeks
5: ago, I was pottering about alone when I became aware of a feeling of great relief, of joy almost, without quite knowing why, when you spend every waking moment with a seven-year-old. It often feels euphoric to be alone. But that wasn't it. By mistake, I'd left my phone behind, but that wasn't quite it either. It wasn't that I couldn't be contacted, I realised, so much as that I couldn't be tracked. My iPhone, with its inbuilt GPS, was at home, logging only its own dismal existence. The find my friend function, which at my family's request I keep switched on, was defunct. I was unfindable. It was joyous. I'm aware that I'm making this sound dramatic, as if I've narrowly escaped a hostage situation, and I see that for most rational people, there's nothing to object to about an app like Find My Friends. All it does is to allow a group of pals to share their location with each other. And, as my husband and nieces patiently point out, it saves a lot of angst and effort. Just by opening the app... And looking at its map, you can see if your friend or family member is stuck in traffic or held up. No need to call, no fumbling to answer in the fast lane. We all find each other in shopping centres with ease. And if I dawdle on the way home from work, or divert into Waitrose to fondle the three-pound avocados, and my husband, spotting my location, can, and often does, text, How come you left work so late? Can you pick up some wine while you're in there? The horror. It's interesting how completely divided the different generations are on the subject of being tracked. Most men and women over 40 understand my unease, but for 20 somethings, it's incomprehensible. They grew up inside the Snapchat app, which has a map my friends feature called Snap Maps, and so it's not just a few family members who can constantly see where they are, but often almost everyone they know. In Snap Maps, they watch little cartoon avatars of all their pals wandering about in real time. It's handy, they say, and fun. If, for instance, you're in the London library, and you see that a friend is there too, you can meet up for a matcha latte. But what if you don't want to meet up? Well, I'm afraid you have no choice. The friend can see exactly where you are, and they know that you know that they know. If you tried to walk away, it would look like Snap Maps Pac-Man, one ominous cartoon figure slowly gaining on the other. I think about my student flat and how back in the day, if a passing friend rang the doorbell, I'd often lie flat on the floor, head below the window height, making no noise until they'd given up and gone away. In the snap map era, the friend would think I'd had a heart attack. So what, it keeps people honest, says a Gen X pal. Even the young admit that the live tracking can lead to difficulties. Because it's considered rude to remove a person from your network, couples who split up still seem to share their location with each other. So you watch as the little cartoon avatar of the guy who broke your heart travels over to your friend's house at midnight, and you watch when he leaves in the morning. It's a wonder any of them are still sane. You'd have thought any decent teen would balk at being followed by their parents, tracked from pub to club via GPS. Yet if I suggest to a 20-something they might want to go dark, I'm met with blinking non-comprehension. It feels reassuring, they say, for people they love to know where they are. But why? Surely snap maps only makes life more dangerous. You're infinitely more likely to be pounced on in a dark alley if you've broadcast the fact that you're walking alone in that dark alley to everyone you've ever met. And how does it help that your parents know where you are? Is it reassuring to think they will at least know where to locate your geotagged corpse? One of the reasons my moment of untracked euphoria felt significant was that it felt familiar, and it occurred to me then that I'd felt just the same way sometimes as a child, and that these moments, when I was not just unobserved but unfindable, were some of the most important of my childhood. The world comes into focus when you're unseen. What does it mean about the internet generation that they're uncomfortable when not observed? Just in the last few years, it's become normal for people of all types and all ages to be tracked wherever they go, via iPhone or Fitbit or smartwatch. A constant stream of data flows from them out into servers worldwide. It's quite normal now for parents to track their young children without telling them, and hypocrite that I am, I've done it myself. There is many a mum's net thread devoted to where best to hide an Apple AirTag in your child's clothes. Avoid the school bag, as it's easily left on a bus and you'll give yourself a heart attack. I have, in the past, cut a hole in the hem of my son's school jumper and sewn a tag in, just to be safe. What's the harm? But there is harm, I'm sure of it. Once you've started to track, there's no going back. And the more you track, the more dangerous it feels not to. Why risk now what you didn't risk a few days ago? It feels like tempting fate. And if your child did go astray and you'd chosen not to track them, how much more culpable would you feel? I think now about my son and about how I'd feel if I discovered that I'd been tracked without knowing it through my own childhood. All those moments when I thought myself undiscoverable, a lie. I'm not sure we have any idea what we've lost.
0: That was Mary Wakefield, and that's it for this episode of Spectator Out Loud. Thank you very much for listening, and do join us again next week.